What is the meaning of the word holy? Holy. Set apart. That's good. Some of you have gone to Bible school. It's awesome. It carries with it a lot of weight, doesn't it, this word holy? It's an interesting word. What does it mean? It means to many people religious, to many people moral. Our language is very confused about the word holy. You ever wonder about the phrase holy cow? Does that just come from Buddhism, Hinduism? Does it come from the East? Where does it come from? We don't know. You ever think about, oh yeah, for some of you that are meat eaters, maybe it comes from you. Holy cow, look at that burger. We think about the idea of a person being holier than thou. We use it as a negative remark. But what does it truly mean to be holy? It is very important for us as God's people. You said set apart. Oftentimes I find in Christian subculture that it means to be weird. That's how we interpret it. Let's be weird in comparison to the rest of the world. Some people, it means set apart that you set apart your subculture. So you only listen to one radio station. You only watch movies that are made with the name God in it. You only do certain things. Some people, it's to dress differently. But the reality is, is that the word holy has so much more to it. When we look at the people of God, they're called holy to the Lord. Look at verse 6 from what we just read in Deuteronomy 7. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And notice it says, you are. Now, if we look at Israel at this point, were they holy as we would classify it? Were they moral? They had just lost most of their people due to this little thing called the golden calf and some distrust of the Lord. Were they holy? He says, you are holy. I find that very interesting. I won't ask for a poll, but I want you to think for a second. Would you say, I am holy? I think most of us as American Christians would say, holy cow, no, right? No, I'm not at all. Holy is for people like, you know, the Pope, right? He's holy. He's even got an outfit to prove it, (laughs) right? Would you call yourself holy? What's interesting is that here in Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says that they are holy. And in 1 Peter 2, it says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's speaking of the church a people for the Lord's own possession. For what purpose? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But do you think it's important for us to understand this word holy? You know, when somebody says, hey, that Hans guy, he's pretty tall. Yeah, I can fulfill that pretty easy, right? That characteristic. But if somebody were to say, hey, that Hans guy, he's called to be holy. Do I even know what that is? Do I know what the expectation is for that word? The root word, as you guys know, uh, is it means to be set apart. Some of you already said it. It's karash. Everybody say karash. Karash. It means set apart. A people set apart. Now, the reason that we're set apart is because the God that we serve, he is holy. He is set apart. The God that we serve is set apart from other gods. There is no other God like him. There is no other demonic entity posing as an idolic God that comes near him. There's no angelic being like him. There's no human like him. There is no other being like our holy God. He's set apart. And so it stands to reason that those things that are associated with him, those people that are his, those places that are his, those things are holy. They're set apart for his purposes and to accomplish his mission and desires. And to understand this definition of holiness will help us as we step into Deuteronomy 7. Because in so doing, I hope to help us understand who we are called to be, 
And I hope to help us reconcile how God can maintain this characteristic of holiness. And yet, as we will see today, or as we already read, and yet he can call for another people to be set apart to destruction. How can God call himself holy, the non-believing world asks, when throughout the Old Testament, he says, Israel, go in and destroy this nation. You ever get posed that question from non-believers? It's one of the biggest ones that's out there right now. And so I hope to help us get a little bit of apologetics today, but also to learn who we are and be sanctified and encouraged in who we're to be. And so today I want us to learn what it is to be a people set apart. If you're taking down notes, that's the title for today, a people set apart. Now Jordan and Sam did such a great job acquainting us with the text, so let's pause for a moment and understand the background itself. The first thing I want to look at within this overall idea of a people set apart is the need to be set apart. And this will give us the background and context. What is the need to even be set apart? It's a funny question to ask, but I think we need to understand it. Remember that when we're looking at a text, we always look at it in context. Good. And there are multiple levels of context. There's the sentence right before and right after. There's the paragraph right before and right after. But one of the bigger contexts is the overall narrative of Scripture. And so whenever you're reading any part of scripture, whatever it might be, you need to look at where does this fit in the overall Bible? And when we come across passages like this, that we read and interpret as, hey, go wipe out that people right there at the beginning of chapter seven, I find that we have this tendency to take it and isolate it and not understand it in the greater picture. And so what we do is we start to make out God to be this big abuser in the sky with a horrifically angry face that Jesus came to save us from, and we randomly start to think that he just chose, just picked this group of people out of the air, and that he's going to destroy them. In essence, we make God into an angry old man that is telling us to get off his cosmic front lawn. Many of you might even think of God that way. And when you think of God, rather than thinking of the unified trinity, you think of God, the grumpy old man, and Jesus, who came to save us from him. But see, that's not the God of the Bible. So let me take a minute and explain and paint a picture of the background of this for you so that as we look at chapter 7, we start to understand a little bit more about why he would ask this. Look there just at verse 1, and we'll read just a few passages. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering in to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Okay, so this is, now you see the problem here. If you're reading this as a non-believer who's never touched the Bible and you read this first about this God who's supposedly love, it seems a little bit problematic, doesn't it? Would you agree with that? We have to admit that as Christians. This is tough, right? So what do we do with this? Well, throughout the ancient Near East, we have to understand that in the days of Abraham, 2,000 years, roughly, a little bit plus, uh, 2,000 years before Christ, the religions that dotted the landscape, they were primarily based off of this idea of fertility cults or fertility gods. And the primary god in the area of Canaan was the male god known as Baal. Everybody say Baal. You might also hear him pronounced in, in English as Baal, Okay. Baal was the primary male god of the fertility cults in the area of Canaan. And he was birthed from a female goddess known as Asherah. Everybody say Asherah. 
okay? It's very related to Astarte, also known as Easter, okay? We won't get into that today. Uh, Come another time for that. And the story went that he was not only, that she was not only his mother, but get ready for this, she was also his wife. Everybody give a collective groan. Disgusting. And when they would consummate their love for one another, and yes, I do mean consummate, it would cause the land to be fruitful. So every time you had a good harvest, you know what was going on in the back room, right? That's basically the idea of what was happening. And this belief system created a religion where very perverse sexual practices started to occur in order to worship these gods. And some of them were sexual, but some of them were also child sacrifice. Uh, Look here just a little bit further down the line in Deuteronomy, at Deuteronomy 12, 31, it says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. They would literally take their newborn children and they would kill them in order to appease these gods, okay? Is that perverse? Yes, it's very, very perverse. In many of the places where these gods were worshipped, you would find altars where they would sacrifice these children surrounded by pillars of Baal that, unfortunately, I know this is gross, but it symbolized his masculinity, if you get my meaning, these pillars. And then Asherim poles carved into the shape of very... uh, enviable figure goddesses. And they uh, would have temple priestesses dance around these Asherah poles, okay? And this would be the worship to these gods. And we're going to see these things described here in verse 5 in just a minute. Now, as much as you might be grossed out by what I'm saying, I'm actually sanitizing it a lot. And these were extremely perverse practices far from the heart of the creator God that we serve and his people. And so you have to realize that these people would do all sorts of grotesque uh, ways of worship in groves of trees. They would have giant orgies in order to worship their gods. This group of people was no different than the other religions of the world in that day. Turn back to Genesis 10 with me for a second, and I want you to see something. Turn back to Genesis 10 and look at starting in verse 15. Give me an amen when you get there. Genesis 10.15 says, Canaan, who was a uh, descendant of Ham, remember that you had Noah, and then he had his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and from Ham eventually came Canaan. And it says in verse 15, Canaan fathered uh, Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, and the Zemurites. You'd think if God were going to wipe out a people, it would be the Sinites, right? <laughs> But he doesn't mention them in that list. And so there are names of offspring of Canaan here that are not called for to be wiped out. Now, that's very important. Remember that for for a minute from now, okay? Now, afterwards, it says, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, what's interesting to know, it's hard for us to understand this as Western Christians, but behind every single one of these groups was a cultic worship uh, religion. There was a God behind each of them, okay? And the author, most likely Moses, speaks of these various nations in chapter 10, but then he takes chapter 11 to describe how these separations of various nations came to be. Go ahead and look there at Genesis 11. Many of you know this story, the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as, a, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord, and notice it's L-O-R-D, all caps, which behind that is the Hebrew name Yahweh. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth." You see, the nations of the world turned aside by this point from following the God of Noah, the true creator God, and they're creating the system of worship that is escalating where they're raising themselves up and they're building their own, uh, what's called a ziggurat or, or temple up into the heavens. And they're saying, I want to create a name for ourselves. Now, if you guys were with us a few weeks back, we talked about how Orthodox Jews, when they don't want to call Yahweh by his name because they want to give reverence. They either call him Adonai, the Lord, or if you remember, they call him Hashem. Everybody say Hashem. It means the name, the name above all names. And so when the Bible says we want to create a name for ourselves and place ourselves high, they're saying we want to put ourselves above God. We want our name to be above every name. And so God's response in part to slow down the rate at which mankind is destroying itself due to its rebellion is to split them apart by nations. And at the core of those nations is the idols that they worshiped. And behind those idols are demonic entities. And we'll discuss this more as we go through Deuteronomy. Now, it's from this group of pagan deity worshipers that God sees this mess and says, I need to do something about it. So just a little ways away from chapter 11 and chapter 12, what does he do? He calls a man named Abram. And notice the wording there in verse 1. This is in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go from everybody who you know and your worship that is backed uh, uh, in your family and go to the land that I will show, show you. And notice what he says here. This is very important wording, guys. And I will make of you a great nation. In other words, in opposition to the other nations. And I will bless you and make, what does he say? Your name great. Wait a minute, God, I thought you just had a problem with making your name great. No, when God's the one who raises a person up because they're doing the mission of Yahweh and making Yahweh's name great, then he's all for it. Bless you. And so he says, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, God sends him to the land of Canaan. Notice what he does once he is in Canaan. Look at verse 5, the last part of it, and look at what he does. For years, I would read over this and just skip right over it and move on, thinking, uh, it's just not that big of a deal. But man, this is massive. He goes into Canaan, and tell me again, what's the name of the God that they serve? Is it Yahweh? No, it was what? Baal. He goes into the middle of Baal land, and he says, when they came to Canaan, to the land of Canaan, verse 9, or excuse me, verse 6, 
Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, I just had talked to you guys about how they did worship to these fertility gods in groves of trees. And the fact that this oak tree is very specifically pointed out most likely means that it was a place of worship held in high regard by the Baal worshipers. Okay? And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to who? The Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, meaning Yahweh, who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. Now, Bethel is a name that means, Bethel, it means house of God. Was this the house of Yahweh? No, this was the house of Baal. And he pitched his tent with Bethel, Bethel, the house of God on the west, and I on the east. And there he built an altar to who? Yahweh, and called upon the name of? Yahweh and Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Now, I might be exaggerating a bit, but this would be a little bit like jumping on a plane, flying over to Mecca, dropping right into the middle, right next to the Kaab, that big black cube that they circle around when they're on their pilgrimages, and erecting a cross, falling to your knees, and starting to sing worship songs to Jesus. How do you think that would go over? If you made it out alive, you probably would be beaten up pretty bad. But this is what Abram did. And you might read it and go, well, Abram was just worshiping God, no big deal. No, guys, why did he get sent? Remember that the name mission, it means to be sent. He was sent as a missionary to this people that were far from God. Yahweh didn't just leave them in their depraved sin. He said, I need to send someone to tell them the truth of who I am, to bring them into righteous lives so that they will follow me, be allegiant to me. Abram was to be a father of a people set apart for the purpose of bringing the truth of Yahweh to the land of Canaan. Now from this point until the time where Moses returns is about 400 to 430 years. And we know this from multiple places, but one place is Genesis 15. Turn there, Genesis 15, 12. This is where God is uh, renewing his covenant and making it firm with Abram. And he says in verse 12, it says in verse 12, that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That means they're going to go into Egypt and they'll be slaves. They'll be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, right? If, if Egypt doesn't turn it around, I'm going to bring judgment on them. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, you shall die. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here to Canaan in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, this is the place where Yahweh enters into covenant with Abram, but he's also doing something else. There's something working in the midst of Canaan. He had just sent this missionary down to speak of Yahweh, and he's saying, I'm going to let that sit for 400 years, and in essence, see if they repent. And if they don't, and their iniquity is full, then I will bring judgment on them. In other words, he says, you'll go to Egypt and be afflicted, and during that time, I will be at work to bring you out and judge that nation. And in the meantime... The sin of the Amorites will complete itself. 
It's a fancy way of saying I'm giving them room to repent, but at a certain point, their chance to repent will be up. And to be a righteous God, I will need to judge them. God was so merciful, folks, that he sent Abram into Canaan to speak to them of the truth of Yahweh's name and character. He sent someone. And then when they didn't immediately respond, he gave them 400 years. Great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, children to repent. But their society only became more depraved and more perverse. Now, fast forward to the day of Moses here in Deuteronomy 7. And take a look back there with me. Go back to Deuteronomy 7. And he says to them, you shall devote these folks to complete destruction. The end of verse 2. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars. Remember the Baal pillars? And chop down their asherim. Those are the Asherah poles. And burn their carved images with fire. You get the context a bit more now. Do you see that this wasn't some random group of people walking along the field, la-da-da-da-da, and God just, I smite thee, right? That's not how it works. If we take this section out of context, we completely miss that God had been merciful and gracious to try and get them to come back to him. And yet there was refusal. We have to know this in order to understand what's happening right now. Here Moses is in Deuteronomy 7, summarizing the commands of God about to send the people in. And he had just finished saying, Israel, Remember who we are. If you look back right before chapter 7, verses 20 through the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 6 is all about the exodus. When your children come and say, hey, why do we follow these laws? Why do we follow these commands? Why do we follow this God? The people were to say to their kids, because God is good. Because he freed us. And he's sent us to be his people and to bring his truth. Remind them that we are a people allegiant to Yahweh above all others. Remind them that we are a people to be set apart for Yahweh and his purposes. And at the core of this truth, guys, is the fact that Israel was in covenant with Yahweh, that they were his special people, not because they were moral, not because they were religious, but because they had been chosen for a purpose, to be set apart for the mission of Yahweh, to make Yahweh's name great among the nations. They were to be a people set apart for that purpose. Now this idea is at the core of our reading today, and if we can encapsulate it and grasp it, we can easily pull it over to 2019. Because to be holy 4,000 years ago meant to be set apart for Yahweh and his purposes. To be holy in 2019 is not to be so moral that you're better than everyone else. It's not to be so religious that everyone knows your religion. It is to be set apart for the purposes of Yahweh above all else. To be holy is to be his. And Yahweh covenanted with them for this purpose. This gives us background context for us to understand Canaan 
and to understand the covenant that God had with his people as we step here into chapter 7. He needed a people to be set apart to carry out his plans. And from that people, there would come one man, one Christ, one Messiah, that would be ultimately set apart. That would be set apart to die for the sins of even the people that had been themselves called holy. Jesus Christ would die perfectly set apart, perfectly sinless, so that we might enter into that covenant with Yahweh God that we might follow him and fulfill his purposes, taking his name to the nations and making his name great above all else. And so we're going to see now not only the need to be set apart, but the command to be set apart. The command to be set apart. We just read through the first six verses there, and he gives specific ways that they are to be set apart that we'll look at in a second. The Apostle Paul spent time thinking through what the purpose of Yahweh was and how having a chosen people accomplished this purpose. We were just in the book of Ephesians. I'm a little bit lonely for Ephesians, so let's go back to Ephesians. We haven't been there in a while. Go back with me to Ephesians 1. Turn there in your Bibles. Go to Ephesians 1, verse 3, and I'm going to connect some dots for you. In the midst of theological discussions in the church, many people uh, debate about what it means to be chosen. But as we just saw, the background of the Old Testament tells us that this idea of predestination, this idea of being chosen, it very much, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, there's lots of very smart people that disagree with me, and that's okay. Uh, In my opinion, the idea of being chosen and preordained and predestined has less to do with an individual and more to do with the people. And that way, when we enter into that people, we know that we are chosen because we are part of that preordained people. Take a look there at Ephesians 1, 3, and you'll see what I mean. Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, not he chose Hans, not he chose me, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? Just like with Israel, that we should be, what's that word? Holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, very good, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And that word sons means sons and daughters in the Greek. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. He is the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood on the cross, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, why did God do all this? What was according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our whole purpose is to bring praise to Yahweh. You see how this idea of holiness needs to be adjusted slightly? We get so focused on the idea of morality, and that shouldn't be dismissed, but when that becomes our everything when we talk about holiness, that God is moral and that we should be moral too, that we miss out on the purpose that holiness is to be set apart for God's purposes. 
to make Yahweh great. Now, that doesn't mean we can dismiss morality, but it does mean we need to have our focus on the right thing. The Lord's purpose back in the days of Deuteronomy and in Ephesians and today is to unite all things in the atoning work of his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And his people in the Old Testament, and with Israel in the Old Testament, and Israel reimagined in the new as the church, we are all his people to be his ambassadors that call for people to be drawn to Yahweh, be drawn to the Lord. But this poses a bit of a problem in our text today. Because if God's purpose is to unite all people, to save all the nations, and to draw them to him, does that seem to really gel with his character than to devote a people to destruction? And again, we hit this barrier of, is this truly the God that we serve? But what I want you to see is that it's actually required. His devotion of them to destruction is the flip side of the coin to devote another people to his praise and his glory. We have to see this in order to understand it. And it's hard for our human minds to grasp. Now, in Deuteronomy 2, you can go back and listen to it from back in November. We discussed some of the things that help us properly interpret this idea of being devoted to destruction. First, not all of the descendants of Canaan, as we saw earlier, that are listed in Genesis 10, are actually listed there to be devoted to destruction. So God was very particular He was very surgical in who he chose in order to devote to destruction. But then we must also understand that the idea that when the Bible talks about this topic, it uses what's called hyperbole or exaggeration. It uses the idea of um, old-time smack talk, as I used to say, or as I've said before. And so this idea of smack talk, this idea of exaggeration, when they said they'd go in and devote all people to destruction, it doesn't mean they'd kill every soul. That's not the literal fact. But even more than that, I want to give you something new today that we didn't cover in Deuteronomy 2. I want you to understand this idea of being set apart for destruction. You can look up at the screen there. In the Hebrew, the word that is used here is cherem. Everybody say cherem. You guys are learning lots of Hebrew today. And this word that is used is for devoting people to destruction. In the Hebrew itself, there's actually two words. It's chacharim, tacharim. Okay? In Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you list it twice. So if you want to say, I really ran, you would say, I ran, ran. Okay? So guys, you can go up to your wife and say, honey, I love, love you. Right? It's really emphasis. It's emphasized. And so what they do in the Hebrew is they would say, herem, herem. They'd say, I want you to really devote them. But the interesting part is that this word has a wide range of meaning. Here, the context tell us it's military in nature that they were going in to be destroyed and devoted to destruction. But the word also more prominently means to excommunicate, to separate, to expel. To practice harem as an Orthodox Jew now means you would remove someone from your covenant community. You would kick them out. And so while I don't want us to discount this military view of defeating the people and devoting them to destruction in a military sense, Our interpretation of them going in to commit complete genocide is not what this is picturing. They weren't going in and committing war crimes against these people. If it were, then look at the text there in chapter 7 and realize he then says, oh, by the way, after you completely devote them to destruction, don't let their kids marry your kids. Why on earth would it say that if they were supposed to go in and kill every living soul? 
Does that make sense? So they weren't going in committing war crimes and killing every child and every person and every baby. No sons and daughters would exist then. And so the Canaanites were to be set apart for a different reason. They weren't to be devoted to destruction just to kill all of them. They were to be set apart to show God's justice. That God was just against their perverse nature, against the fact that they had rebelled against him. And he was, in essence, giving them over to the direction they were already moving. We must understand this because the gospel requires this understanding. You see, when someone is deciding to not step into covenant relationship with Jesus, God doesn't just sit up there and say, well, I don't like you, so therefore I'm going to destroy you. He gives them over to the the way of destruction that they're already going. And so in doing this here in Deuteronomy 7, Yahweh was proving himself not only just, but also faithful to the followers of Abraham. You see, you can't say you're in covenant with one group and you're devoted to them without also dealing with the other group. Remember what was said in Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you might say, and, and this is what our society says, well, why couldn't God just have left them alone? Let them just you know, be themselves, no big deal. Why does he have to intervene? Well, you see, covenant doesn't work like that, guys. For example, in my marriage covenant with my wife, my wife is holy. Now you might say, well, we all know Kelly. So yes, that's true. She's holy, right? (laughs) But Kelly is set apart for a very specific purpose in my life, for covenant relationship. She is set apart for a special relationship. Now, in order for that to be the case, I then must also devote and set apart to an extent every other human being in a way where I expel them from that same relationship. In other words, if I were to sleep with every other woman in the world, would I have a special devoted relationship to my wife? No, not at all. But our society has gotten so confused with the idea of sex and marriage that we think, well, what's the problem with sleeping with everybody? Polyamory is no big deal. I have tons of classmates in my counseling programs who are dealing with this issue up in Portland. Portland is one of the largest communities of polyamory in the world. Because people are going, well, what's the big deal? I, you know, just sleeping around with people, right? I feel close to them. Why not just sleep with them? Well, guys, the whole point of marriage and sexuality was to show a devotion, to show a covenant in very physical form. And so I must, in my covenant marriage, must expel every other person, male and female, from the marriage bed, so to speak. If I did not do this, I would not have a special covenant relationship with my wife. If Yahweh did not protect Israel and love them and guide them and preserve them, then how on earth could he say he had a covenant relationship with them? If he did not deal with their enemies, how on earth could we say that he was a faithful God, faithful to his covenant? His passion towards justice overruled any of our idea of morality. His passion for faithfulness overruled our idea and opinion that he shouldn't go through and do this in Deuteronomy 7. He knows that for him to be faithful, he must also deal justly with those who are unfaithful. And so when people decide not to step into relationship with Yahweh, when they decide not to walk 
in devoted relationship to Jesus. Jesus, to be just, will devote them to what they desire, which is destruction. When we choose not to covenant, the other option is nothing but destruction. But then Israel was also to be set apart. We see now that Canaan was set apart in one way, but Israel was to be set apart in another way. They were set apart for Yahweh's purposes, not in terms of destruction and judgment, but in terms of being able to speak truth, to speak that Yahweh was the name above all other names, to be a holy nation and a priesthood among the rebellious nations. And so God gives them three ways in which they are to avoid attaching themselves to the Canaanites and their gods. Let's take a look at them here. There are three ways, politically, socially, and spiritually. You can write these down. The first command on how to be set apart was that they were to set themselves apart politically. They were to make no covenant with the Canaanites whatsoever. Now, why would this be? Well, because remember, to make a covenant with a nation was to also make a covenant with the God that they worshipped. Now, this is totally lost on us. We don't understand it at all. Because we have so eliminated the idea of who you worship attached to who you are, that it's no big deal for us. But if Israel had covenanted with Canaan in peace, they would have been, in essence, covenanting with Baal. And therefore, they could not say that they maintained the relationship with Yahweh. In fact, this is what happens during the times of the kings. Now, second, they were to set themselves apart socially. Now, this doesn't mean that if you went to a social mixer, you'd stay on one part of the gym and they'd go on the other, right? What this means is that the fabric of society was marriage. And so the ordinance, the command was don't marry into their families. Now, people have wrongly used this for generations to talk about interracial marriage as being bad. And that is a complete and utter lie from the pit of hell. This has to do with who you worship, not what the color of your skin is. And so the reality is here is that he was saying, if you get married, guess what's going to happen? Well, he says right there in, in chapter 7, verse for they would turn away your sons from following me. Because as we saw, or as we've seen in the Bible many times, people get pulled away by who they're intimate with. It is important for us as followers of Christ to think about our various relationships. Now, those of you who are single in the room who are not married, you've heard me say this before. It matters who you marry. Can I get an amen from those who are married? And if you talk to people who made a mistake in marrying somebody who wasn't devoted to the Lord, you will get an even heartier amen when when, when I say it matters who you marry. Because it doesn't matter right now to you because, yeah, I love them, I'm in a relationship with them, but guess what? If you marry them, you will be raising children with them. Think through what will happen if that other person does not guide them in the same way you do towards Christ. You will then be a parent wondering if your child is going to end up with Jesus or not. It's a pretty big ask to marry someone who's not devoted in the same direction you are. But this matters not just for marriage. It matters for really any relationship. I meet so many young people that won't get devoted to the Lord in a serious way because their parents say, well, what are you, zealous now? Right? That relationship with their parent is so important that they won't devote themselves to the Lord. And this is why it's so important for us to say, do our relationships fall under the kingship of Jesus? Is our highest priority Jesus? 
When our church went through membership and we started to see some people get frustrated and branch off, I wasn't worried about whether or not they thought I was preaching the word. I wasn't worried about whether or not they thought our church was good. I was worried about, will one of the people who they're close to pull them away? Because rather than committing to Christ and committing to his people, we find ourselves committing in intimate relationships to people that pull us away from Jesus. And the same thing would happen here. If people got married to a person who was worshiping Baal, the likelihood of them staying worshiping Yahweh was very low. It matters who you're intimate with. Now, King Solomon did not heed these words, for example, and he made military alliances. And in those days, that meant you married into the royal family of the people you were making peace with. And this is how he enlarged his kingdom. Uh, look at what it says here in 1 Kings 11.4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Guys, even if you're marrying somebody and they say they're a Christian, look at their life. I get so sad when I see these people who are devoted to Jesus and all they're looking for is a person of the opposite gender who says they're a believer. You're serious about Jesus. Look for a person who's serious about Jesus. And then your life will be on the correct path. Well, and so third, the Israelites, they were commanded to not covenant with them on a level of worship. They were to break down their altars, the pillars and the ashram poles, and to destroy any hint of covenant with the gods of the Canaanites. And guys, this shows God's mercy and grace. You might think that's terrible. What a mean God to go in and destroy their altars. But you see, this is, this is loving because Israel was to be the people that would act as the priesthood. From Israel was to come the Messiah that would die for our sins. If God had just said, all hands off, we're going to see what happens, and they had gotten sucked into Baal worship, then all hope would be lost because you couldn't have a Messiah come from a people who worship Baal. This was God's loving way to say, I need to pull you apart. I need to separate you for a special purpose. And from you, the hope of all nations, the blessing of all nations will come. For Israel to be allowed to unite with these pagan religions would have destined not only Israel to destruction, but all other nations and you and I as well. In all these ways, we understand that while God seems a little bit like a grumpy old man saying, get off my cosmic lawn, in reality, he's gracious and loving and merciful and just. And so we need to understand that the core of all three of these is do not do anything or partner with anyone that will cause your covenant relationship with Yahweh to be broken. Folks, the second you see your zeal for the Lord swerving because of an activity, a person, a goal in life, you got to drop it. You got to drop it as quick as possible and reset your eyes towards Jesus and him alone. So we see one group of people set apart to fulfill the end of God's faithfulness in covenant, the Israelites, and we see another group of people set apart to fulfill his justice that he would destroy them for their rebellion. Both people were set apart to the Lord to accomplish his purposes. Well, let's continue back in Deuteronomy 7, 6. And the next thing that we're going to see is not only the command to be set apart, but now we're going to see the identity of a people set apart. The identity of a people set apart. We've seen why there's a need to be set apart, that God would save us from ourselves, that he would give us a people that would guide us to him. 
We've seen the command to be set apart, that we need to be set apart in covenant commitment to Yahweh through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But third, we have an identity of a people set apart. And this goes back to the idea I was talking about earlier. That many of us in this room would never say, yeah, I'm holy, I'm good. But brothers and sisters, here's the reality of what the Bible says. If you are a Christian, you are holy. Let me say that again. The Bible says that if you are a Christian, you are holy. It's not your job to earn that holiness. It was already freely given to you. And your job is simply to live within it, to walk within it, to recognize that it's who you are and to be that. As a pastor uh, and as a counselor, I find that one of the biggest problems is that we as Christians don't know who we are. I sit with non-believers outside of the church And a lot of what I work with is identity issues. I sit in the church and guess what I work with? Identity issues. Because we're constantly trying to look at external things to give us our identity, to give us our value. And we are really good at applying the gospel logistically. If I believe in Jesus and I accept him as savior, then I get to go to heaven when I die. But we're not great at it personally or emotionally uh, applying the gospel to the truth of who we are. Moses gives his people their identity here. And the identity of a people set apart has three pieces. First, that they're God's treasured possession. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this applies to you. And your identity is to recognize that you are God's treasured possession. You are part of the church. In the Hebrew throughout the Bible, it's used elsewhere in scripture to describe Uh, the private treasure of a king who owned everything, but he has this one thing uh, that is special. When Kelly makes cookies, she sets apart a holy sample unto Hans. She knows that I love the dough before it gets cooked, and so she takes a piece out and sets it over to the side. And while we might eat all the cookies, that bit is special, right? You are God's cookie dough, okay? You can put that on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. It's going to be big in another year, I tell you. When Jesus Christ called you to become part of his people, the church, he was calling you to come and be prized by him. He was calling you into covenant love that he desires to share with you. And he calls us to not only share with him, but to make him our highest good, our greatest desire, and to share it with one another. And because we are united with him in covenant, we are immediately made holy. You see, guys, Jesus didn't go to the cross and die to atone for our sins and say, okay, good luck now. I hope you can attain holiness. He gave us what's called his imputed righteousness. He literally placed his being on us and said, you are now seen as holy and righteous and true and just in the eyes of the Father. And the rest of our life on this earth is to grow in sanctification, to actually Live within that. It's like what I say to my kids. I'll I'll say to to John and Jaden, who are eight years old and are not men yet, guys, you are men. You are strong followers of Jesus. You are lovers of people. Now, is that because, man, they're just totally living it up and doing all those things perfectly right now at eight years old? No, it's because I'm training them to be that so that hopefully when they're 40 years old, they're better men than I am. Well, it's the same thing. 
When God sees us, he sees us through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his blood that was shed for us. And he says, you are holy. And so many of us are so wigged out going, oh God, I need to hurry up and earn your holiness. I need to be better. No, just realize you're already made holy by Jesus. And honestly, it will kick in more than it ever has before. When we're united with him, we're already seen as holy and the holiness then flows out of us because we're set apart in covenant for his kingdom work. We are his treasured possession. Well, second part of the identity of a people who's set apart is that we need to realize that we're loved by God. We look to so many external things and relationships in this life and try and convince ourselves that we are good enough to be loved. We try to convince ourselves that we're good enough to be desired. But the love that the Lord gives is not just some emotional well-wishing. It's not positive thoughts to bolster our self-image. The love that Jesus gives us is active. It's based not in just thought, but in action. An action of covenant faithfulness and commitment against all others. It's a love that's peculiar. And it's a peculiar protection and provision to watch over us. It's a love of grace and mercy carried out by the Lord on our behalf. It's a love that is so strong that the Father gave his most prized possession, his own Son, Jesus Christ, to show you that you are desired, that you are loved, and that you are valued. And the most amazing part of God's love is found here if we look at the next verse in verse 7. Let's take a look. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it says, that he chose us. But then he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Don't you love that? Why does he love us? Because he loves us. When you're sitting there going, Lord, why do you love me? Well, because he loves you. You don't have to ask any other questions. The Lord loves us because he loves us. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So often I I think we forget that a person who doesn't love Jesus is the enemy of Jesus. Now we'll talk about what that means for us and how we interact with them, but realize that a person who doesn't want to enter in covenant relationship with Jesus is saying to his face, I hate you. I don't want you. The most amazing part of God's love is that all of us have done that. That all of us have said to his face, we want nothing to do with you. And guys, here's the crazy part about the gospel. That's exactly why he chose us. He chose Israel because they were the last to be chosen off the playground. They were the worst of the worst. They were the smallest of the small. And he went, okay, I'm going to grab you. And the goodness of the gospel is that he took a man like me and brought me to himself. The goodness of the gospel is that he took depraved, horrible, hard-hearted, darkened sinners like you and brought you to himself. And the faster that we admit that, 
the more we realize how loved we are. I think one of the things that holds us back from truly understanding his love is that a lot of the time I go around going, I'm, I'm actually pretty cool. God, good, good job choosing me for your team. Yeah. Well, guess what happens when I make a mistake? All of a sudden that love goes away because I thought it was me. But when you finally come to the place where you go, there is nothing about me that makes God want to love me, but yet he still loves me, that love never goes away. When you get that he loves you because he loves you, two things occur. First, any attempt to earn the love, it fades away. We suddenly become completely disinterested in showing ourselves to be lovable because we realize we're not. And secondly, it causes us to have such immense gratitude that we will be overcome with love and thankfulness in response. I was literally sitting in my office yesterday going through this, this part of the teaching and I just, it just dawned on me, as it has many times, how depraved I am and yet how God still loves me. And we can look to the Lord in that moment where we realize how much he loves us and say, Lord, you did not need to choose me. You did not need to build a people whom you would place your love upon and pull me into them. You did not need to call me into your people, but you did. You called me, you loved me because you're good, because you are faithful. And so to be a people that's set apart for his purposes is to first realize that you're treasured and that you're loved and to live within that identity, regardless of what your emotions or the world around you tells you. Well, third, to be set apart is to be different from the world around us. And what is it that separates us? As I said, we often look to the movies we watch or the music we listen to, and yes, that can be part of it, but look at what it says separates those who are his in verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and, what's it say there? Keep his commandments. But what does this mean for us today to be set apart, to be different? Do you think it changes from that? No, it's still to love him and to keep his commandments. And what are his commandments? Well, Jesus encapsulated it. Love God and love one another. We've been talking this whole time about whether or not God loved his enemies. And this is what he says to us uh, in Luke 6. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. You get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You see, what sets us as Christians apart and makes us different is not that we're holier than thou. It's that we love, that we love one another and we love our enemies. That we love the people, even within this church, who might annoy us or might anger us. That we show love to each other, even when we're upset with one another. Now, one might argue, but the Old Testament God didn't love his enemies. He destroyed them. That's what we read today, Hans, right? But remember, all the things that we've talked about so far, God was merciful and gracious. He was trying to get them to repent. And eventually, he had to give them over to the destruction that they chose. He sent Abraham to call them to repentance. He waited for 430 years 
And finally, he even sent Israel to dwell amongst them so they might taste and see that Yahweh is good. What more love could one ask of God towards his enemies? You see, we're to reflect the character of God by proclaiming the gospel's effect on our own lives. While I was an enemy in rebellion against God, he loved me so much that he sent his own son to take on the punishment for my sin and for yours. And by the very existence of me within the kingdom and you within the kingdom, we tell the world that God loves his enemies because I was one once. And this is not a love that is just ambiguous in purpose. It's a love that is meant to unite people with Christ in his purpose and in his mission. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6, if you will, in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 6, there's this famous section that we've read before. 2 Corinthians 6.14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. There's that idea of holiness. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul tells us to be separate. And many of us take this and we say, okay, this is talking about morality. And that is part of it, yes. But guys, you have to read this in context. And the context is here from chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Pause there for a second. Who was Abraham? He was an ambassador for Yahweh, God making his appeal through him. Who was Israel? They were the ambassadors, a holy priesthood, God making his appeal through them. Who is the church? Ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We are all ambassadors on his behalf. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Guys, the reality of being set apart is to not only be treasured and loved and different, but it's also to be different in a, a way that's not just moral. It's a, it's a way of operating on mission with the Lord for his purposes to unite all things in him. This is so important to remember because I've found over the years that it does not matter if one claims to be a Christian unless their life speaks to the fact that they are on the same mission as Christ. Now, I know that's hard for us to understand, but I hear it all the time as a pastor. Oh, so-and-so is a Christian. Oh, great. You know, what in their life speaks it? Oh, I don't know. They just, they say they're a Christian. Guys, we have to get rid of that idea. 
If one is a Christian, they are holy, which means they are set apart, which means their entire life is for the purpose of what? To be an ambassador of the gospel. Those that are set apart are set apart for this purpose in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our schools. We operate always, not simply as moral citizens, but as ambassadors for Jesus, loving those who we might disagree with or even find annoying. It's our love leading towards unity in Christ that shows that we are on mission with him, and it's part of who we are that makes us distinct and different from the world around us. Well, fourth, and lastly, to be set apart is to realize that we are completely dependent upon the Lord. Go back to Deuteronomy 7 with me. Deuteronomy 7. Got just a little bit more to go here. It says in verse 12, And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew will he inflict upon you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them and neither shall you serve their gods for that would be a snare to you. Now, it's so easy in this passage for us to take it and apply it in the idea of American Christian religion, which is very much a prosperity gospel. That what God was promising them here is prosperity. But remember, all that we have been reading acts as a, what's called a polemic or an argument against the other religions surrounding Israel. The Canaanites viewed all their provision as coming from which God? Not Yahweh, but Baal. And so as they entered the land, they would see that these people were going to be furious and fearful that if Baal were upset, nothing would get provided. And so guys, this is not an argument for prosperity. We'll talk about this more as we get to the end of Deuteronomy. It's not an argument that if you obey God enough, you're going to have a good life. This is what's been taken out of this and used within American Christianity for a long time. I hear it all the time. But guys, go read Job. Go read the Proverbs. Job was one of the most righteous men, and how happy was the first part of that story? Not at all. We have to get rid of this idea that God is making a deal here and saying, if you're moral enough, then I'll give you everything you want. What this actually is, is stating Yahweh is the one from whom provision comes. Yahweh is the one who gives you what you need. Moses is reminding the people of Israel that they should not fear and not be anxious about today or tomorrow, but that they need to show the Canaanites who the true source of provision is. And he knows that in the midst of this, they're going to have a hard time. If we look at these core identities here that we just talked about, that we're treasured, that we're loved, that we're different from the world, and that we're dependent on the Lord, how hard is it to live within that identity? How hard is it, church? Super hard. And so the next section, which I don't have time to read because we've already gone long enough, but uh, uh, Sam and Jordan read it earlier, 17 to the end. I want to look at it and encapsulate it with just verse 21. He says there in verse 21, when your heart is saying, how do we do this? How do we get there? Look at what verse 21 says. You shall not be in dread 
You shall not be in dread of them, of the Canaanites, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Moses knows that in the midst of their enemies, being this people set apart to show who Yahweh is, is going to be difficult. And so he finishes here with the last point, and that's this. He finishes with the courage we need to be set apart. At the core of this encouragement is this idea that God is in the midst of his people. And that when I look at the world surrounding me and surrounding us, I don't know about you guys, but I am sometimes overwhelmed with a feeling of dread at the gargantuan task of speaking the gospel into the midst of this world. Does anybody else ever feel that way? We look at the news and we think, oh my gosh, it's all going to heck in a handbasket. Holy cow, we say, right? (laughs) How on earth are we supposed to be a people set apart? How am I, as a, a guy in the midst of this world, supposed to be set apart in purity and love for my wife and devotion to Jesus? How is anybody, honestly? It's a gargantuan task. We ask, Lord, how will the church overcome? How will I be sanctified when so many things fight against me to pull me to destruction? And this is what Israel felt like. And so Moses reminds them and says, don't fear. The Lord is with you. He's in your midst. Remember that our God is with us and his fight to use us, set apart for his purposes, isn't something that he's just sitting back and saying, good luck. He's actually empowering us and walking with us and That's why we need one another. We need him in the midst of our body. And he will continue not only in each of our lives individually, but here at mission to make us set apart to fulfill his purposes. I want to finish with one last place. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter one, and then I'll be all done for today. In Philippians, Paul is writing with a very similar attitude where he is trying to encourage them in the midst of what they're doing. And I just want to read it to you. Philippians 1, verse 3. He says to them, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And remember, the gospel isn't just a statement that comes out of our mouth. It's not just a prayer we pray. It's not just a theological idea. It is a mission that we are on. Unite people to Christ, to reconcile them to Christ by speaking the gospel truth that he died for our sins and rose again and was enthroned as king. So he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When we read a text, we always read it in. So what is he saying? Is he saying, boy, you're going to become a great you know, basketball player because Jesus, he's faithful to complete the work he started in you. No, he's talking about he will fulfill using you for his purposes to share the gospel and to spread it among the people. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, he says, because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Brothers and sisters of mission, I want to encourage you today to keep up the fight to be set apart for Jesus together and individually. If you have declared Jesus as your King and Savior, that means you're in covenant relationship with him and with the Father God. 
through the Holy Spirit. You are already holy, set apart for his work, the work of the gospel. And I want to encourage you that this same feeling that Paul had towards the Philippian church is what the Lord has towards us and what I have towards you. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And brothers and sisters of mission, I am sure of this, that Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion when he comes back. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now I'm not imprisoned. But as I stand here today and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, I know that you are with me. And I pray that you would know that you are with one another. I pray that you would be encouraged in being set apart for the work that Jesus is completing in you. And so in closing... This morning, I have just a couple of quick application points. First, if you are not a person who's following Christ, if you are not in a devoted covenant relationship with Yahweh, I would ask, why not? He has shown his love for you by sending his son to die for your sins and to bring you into relationship with him. If you want to know who Yahweh is, if you want to know who Jesus is, I would ask that you come back and talk with me during worship. I'd love to pray with you to accept Jesus as your Savior and as your King. But I also want to ask for those of us who might be struggling, we might say we're Christians, but we think, am I really in a covenant relationship with the Lord? I don't know if that's how I classify it. I want to ask you, what might need to be lowered in priority? What might need to be destroyed or devoted to destruction in order to make the covenant relationship you have with the Lord your highest priority? Second question I want to ask is, for those of you in this room who might feel like you're unloved, like you're not desired. I want to ask you, do you know your identity as part of God's love people? And I would challenge you this week that if that question strikes home for you, I would challenge you in your time of meditation and prayer to confess to the Lord that you've been looking to outside sources other than Christ for the identity of being loved and desired. There is nothing that can fulfill that, guys. Confess that to the Lord and then ask him to speak to you, not in an audible voice, but just simply through the knowledge of the word by the power of the Holy Spirit that you are part of his loved people and that you are desired. Third, if you are a person who maybe struggles with the fact that you don't know why you're different, even though you're a Christian, I would ask you to ask the question, what is it that makes me different? And I can guarantee you if you're relying upon your political opinions or your moral value, then you're not much different than everybody else in the world. If you're relying upon the movies you watch or the music you listen to, then you're not much different than everybody else in the world. What makes us different is our love for our enemies and our partnership with Christ and the mission to make Yahweh's name great. And so I want to challenge those of you for whom this question strikes home, I want to challenge you this week to sit in prayer and bring to mind your enemies and to pray for them. Pray for your enemies this week. Pray for your enemies, whether they're outside this church or non-believers or whether maybe you even have someone in this church that you can't just get over the grudge you have towards them. And I would pray that you would pray for them 
and in so doing, love them. And lastly, the last question is, for those of you in in this church that wrestle with anxiety and stress about whether or not the Lord's going to take care of you and take care of your family and provide for you and provide for your health, I want to ask you, do you rest in the Lord's provision? If this strikes home for you, I want you to spend this week, each day, waking up in the morning and spending at least 10 minutes thanking the Lord for what he has already provided so that you can set your eyes on the fact that he is good and generous and you can start to take your eyes off of what you haven't got or what you're worried about. In all these ways, we can make ourselves start to realize that we are a people set apart. Dear brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship, visitors, let's be a people set apart to the purposes of Jesus Christ and realize that he has already done the work to make us holy. Our job is simply to walk in that.